you have a Bible, open it to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. Getting back into our study of Mark's Gospel. Spent the last few weeks doing Christmas messages, which is great. This morning, we're going to look at two stories that are often kind of viewed separately by people, partially because the first story is in chapter 1 and the second story is in chapter 2. You may already know this, you may not, but when the Bible was written, it was not written as one big book. The Bible is a collection of books. 66 books written by over 40 authors over about a 1,500-year period in three languages, mostly in Greek and Hebrew, but there's also a little bit of Aramaic, and I think there's actually a little bit of Babylonian in there too. It wasn't that somebody sat down and said chapter 1. Now later on, people added chapters and then they added verses to make it easier to find things. But when Mark wrote his gospel, his good news account of Jesus and who he was and what he did, he didn't sit down and say chapter 1, chapter 2. The story at the end of chapter 1 was meant to flow into the beginning of chapter 2. So let's read. Mark chapter 1. Verse 40 says, A man with leprosy came to him, that's Jesus, and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was, clean, and he was cleansed. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you do not tell anyone, but go. Show yourself to the priest. Offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no, no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in the lonely places. Yet people still came to him from everywhere. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home, and they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. So men came bringing him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it. And then they lowered the mat the man was lying on. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like this? He's blaspheming. 
Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in His Spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts, and He said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. And he got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. God wants to work. God wants to work in people's lives. I don't know if you believe that. Maybe we believe it to a certain extent. Maybe we believe it for some people, but not for others, or for some people, but not ourselves. Maybe we, sure, I believe that God wants to work, but he's not maybe going to. Whatever the thing is, God wants to work in people's lives. But people will sometimes get in the way of that work. They'll put up barriers to God's work in their life or in the world around them. Sometimes we don't even believe that we need God's work in our life. Why did that leper in chapter 1 come to Jesus and beg Him and get down on His knees and plead? Because he was in a place of desperation. Who likes change? Don't even bother raising your hand. Because you'd be lying. Right? And we don't need that. we got enough to deal with. Nobody likes change. We get things to the way that we like them. And then we, we kind of try to settle in. I I will change if I don't like something, if I'm uncomfortable, if I feel that I have no other choice, then I will change, but otherwise I will get things to how I like them and I will leave them be. And that's true for just about everybody on the planet. Desperation is one of the things that pushes people to seek a different situation. Desperation is what pushes people to break out. Desperation for something better is what caused our forefathers to come across the plains and pioneer. Desperation is what causes somebody to come and and seek. When my dad was dying of cancer, I remember we would get all kinds of you know, if you just go to Mexico, and if you just go to this person, if you just do this, desperation will do that. And my dad was not a desperate man, and he said, you know, I'd rather spend time with my family than spend time in, in Mexico getting sound blasted or something like that. But desperation causes people to seek. This guy was desperate. He was hopeless. He had no chance. There, at the time was no cure for leprosy. In fact, there was not a cure for leprosy until 
maybe 100, 130 years ago, up until, up until my great, great-grandfather's time, there was still no cure. Up until what would happen actually is if you were get, if you were diagnosed with leprosy, it's a skin disease, and it causes lesions and discolorment. You start to lose feeling, and so what'll happen is you might burn your hand and not know it. You might cut yourself and not know it, and then an, another infection sets in and gangrene, and then you're you know they have to amputate or something. You know, you you all of a sudden fingers start falling off. And so you might walk around horribly disfigured. And what would happen is you would be cast out of the city or the village and they would have these leper colonies where they would sort of band together away from everyone else. And even until the 60s or the 70s in in parts of, of the world, there were still leper colonies. In the mid-80s, there were over 5 million people worldwide afflicted with leprosy. Now, fortunately, uh, worldwide today, they believe there's somewhere around 200,000 cases of leprosy. And it is treatable. And and the World Health Organization is doing their their best to treat. Um, Actually, I found out in America, there's about 200 cases of leprosy diagnosed per year. And armadillos are the main source because apparently the uh, early like conquistadors somehow gave leprosy to armadillos and now armadillos are giving it back. So if you are in the desert and you see an armadillo and you think that's so adorable, they roll themselves up into a ball and that's just so, don't touch it. Otherwise, you have to go through like a year of treatment. It's, it, it's, uh, just leave that armadillo alone, man. But in that day, there was no hope. You would not get better. And you would be ostracized and you would be cast out. And so here is a man who is desperate because of both his ill health and his social ostracism. He was just cast away. Nobody has hugged him. Nobody has embraced him. Nobody has cared about him. If he was walking down a road somewhere and he saw people, he would have to shout out, unclean, unclean. Now, I will say, uh, you know, my wife uh, works for the school district. And uh, I, I volunteer up at View Acres uh, Elementary. I, I do chess club. And are you a good chess player? No, but I can beat fifth graders at chess, and that's all you need to be able to do. And I don't go easy on them because I'm a mean person. But there are times where some of those kids, I see the snot, and I'm like, you should yell out unclean because <laughs> you probably haven't washed your hands because you're, you're eight, right? You know. And my kid's one of them, so I'm not, you know. But they would have to walk and shout, unclean, unclean, left alone. Can you imagine nobody holding you? Nobody caring about you. And he is desperate and he comes and he says to Jesus, if you are willing. Now, some of your Bibles, like if you have a King James or a New King James, might say that Jesus was full of compassion. 
Some of your translations, if you have like an NIV or an NLT, it might say Jesus was indignant. That's not a word that I normally associate with Jesus, right? That's not like, you know, those uh, Bible verse a day calendars, right? Jesus was indignant. That doesn't make it, right? That, that's not one of them. The, the Bible was, this part of the Bible is written in Greek, translated to English. The Greek word that we translate either full of compassion or indignant is kind of hard to translate, but basically it means Jesus had a gut reaction. His reaction to this man and his situation, it wasn't like a, a very intellectual response, you know. Hmm, I can see that you're sick. And knowing your condition and knowing all of the societal norms of the day, I can see what your life must be like. I think I will help you. This word where it says indignant or full of compassion, it, it's basically a gut reaction. Jesus at his core, responded to this man's plight. That he looked at his situation and just said, oh. And then he touched him. Now, they didn't know it back then. We know this now that actually um, physical contact is the least likely way to transmit leprosy. It's actually, uh, they, they believe a... Uh, disease that, you know, if somebody coughs in your face. Or if you're six and you touch somebody's booger. I'm not joking. Leprosy actually stays dormant for a long time. It's very possible that this man, as a six-year-old, ate his friend's booger. I'm not joking. This is a very likely way. And then it stayed dormant for five, ten, even twenty years. And then all of a sudden he gets leprosy. And it has nothing to do with how he acted as a functional adult. And nobody's touched him and he's ostracized and he's cast out. And here comes somebody who has a reputation as a great teacher, maybe a prophet, maybe somebody really important. And they reach out and they touch him. And they, Jesus says, I am willing I am willing. Now, that's in your notes. That's one of those things to write in because I want to camp on that for a minute. Jesus is willing. Jesus is willing. If, if in how we approach God, how we pray, we think, God, I know you will work in other people's lives. I just don't think you'll work in mine. You have to understand that God is willing to work in our lives. Does that mean he's going to do everything we want? No. One of my one of my, my oldest friend, the person I have called a friend the longest in my whole life. His mom had cancer. And she was miraculously healed of cancer. There was a test, there was evidence, there was medical science. You have cancer. And there's a whole story and I don't have time to get into it but divinely healed. And then two days later, there's another test, medical science. You do not have cancer. Where did it go? My dad didn't get that healing. Does that mean that God didn't like my dad or wasn't willing? No, that meant it was my dad's time to go home. It wasn't my friend's mom's time. But it doesn't mean God wasn't working. 
that God wasn't willing to work and to, to move in the life of my dad. In fact, just a couple of years ago, a man named Marsh Forster, it's a memorable name, right? Marsh Forster, passed away. I know Marsh came to faith in Jesus through my dad's testimony to him before he died. And Marsh uh, lived a lot longer than my dad did. But he's in heaven because God was willing to work through my dad in his time of trial. But Jesus is willing, and this indignation came from the horrible way this man was treated. Yes, it was good that somebody, if somebody has like the plague, you know, every so often you read a story in the news about somebody getting like the Black Death. It's like still around. And, and then they, what do they do? They quarantine them. They put them in an isolated room for a while. That's good. I don't want to be in a room with somebody who has the Black Death, right? Unless I have one of those spacesuits on like I see in the movies. But it's one thing to do the right thing and, and isolate somebody who has a, a communicable disease. It's another thing to treat them in a way that says you aren't valuable. That you are less important. There, there's nowhere in this... In fact, you might remember this. Jesus and his disciples were walking somewhere and they saw somebody who was born blind and who was begging in the streets. And one of Jesus' followers said to him, um, you, you, you know a lot of things. We're pretty sure you're the Messiah. Um, did his parents sin or did he sin? Is that why he's blind? And Jesus said, no, neither of those things. He was just born blind. That happens. But their culture believed that. And Jesus looked at this man and his suffering and how he had been needlessly treated. And he had a gut reaction. It wasn't intellectual. It wasn't, oh, I suppose I can. It was at a gut level. And Jesus has looked at our state and our situation when we were in our sins. And at a gut level, God responded and said, I am going to set a rescue plan in motion. And that is why we have Christmas because God came to our rescue. That we were dead and dying in our sins and God came to our rescue. So if Jesus is willing, why is it that sometimes it doesn't seem like God's working? Can I, can I make a suggestion? Sometimes our disobedience makes it harder for God to work because Jesus heals this man and then he says to him, I want you to go to the priest and show yourself. And apparently he, was, he would have been known to the, to the community. And he said, I'm the guy that had leprosy. And look, I have no leprosy. And in the Old Testament law, there was rules for if you had a disease where you needed to be cast out from the city, separated, quarantined, there was a way to come back and say, hey, I'm better now. And the priest was supposed to examine the person. And if the priest examined them and they passed all of the requirements, they were to sacrifice two birds as a sort of a thanks offering to God for the healing. And then they were allowed back into society. And Jesus said, I want you to go. And don't tell anyone. It says he strongly or sternly warned him. And that means exactly what you think it means. 
Jesus wasn't just like, hey, I wouldn't do this. Jesus was clear. There was no way for this guy to mistake what Jesus wanted him to do. I want you to go to the priest. And I want you to go and present yourself as somebody who's been healed of leprosy. Which scholars, both Christian scholars and Jewish scholars who have looked at this account, say, as far as they can tell, nobody had ever gone to the priest for this ritual to happen. There had been people that had had something and gotten better, but nobody who had had leprosy and been out in the colonies and had 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 all the disfigurement and everything now comes back fully healed and says, I want to be presented as healed. In fact, uh, many scholars say that it was a sign that they were looking for, that the Messiah would bring healing. And so they said, hey, there's all these rituals in the Old Testament law, the Old Covenant law, about what do you do if, if you're healed? And that's never happened. We, we think the Messiah is actually going to heal people and that will be evidence that he has come. Instead of doing that, the man goes and he tells everybody he can about what had happened to him. Now that's totally understandable, right? In his position, you might do the same thing. But it's exactly what Jesus told him not to do. And the instructions were for this man's blessing. If you're filling in your notes, the instructions were for this man's blessing. If you go, you will present yourself to the priest. You will be allowed back into society. It was also for the priest's information. Hey, priests, religious leaders, there has been a healing. These signs of the Messiah are starting to show themselves. And instead, he goes and he tells everybody and the crowds get so big that Jesus had to stay away, verse 45, from where there was the greatest need. And where was there the greatest need? It's where people were. I don't understand, can I be really honest? I don't understand Christians that don't love living in Portland. North Clackamas, Milwaukee, Ochre of Gladstone, Portland... Even Happy Valley. That was a joke. Kind of. I don't understand Christians, and there are Christians in other parts of the country that say, if I say I'm a pastor in the Portland area, and they'll say, well, I'm sorry. What are you talking about? People are here. People that need Jesus are here. What a great place to be. People were where the need was, but because of this man's disobedience, the crowds got so great that Jesus couldn't even enter a city. He had to stay out in the lonely places. And people still came and there's still ministry happening, but now he is prevented from going. I actually think that this guy that gets healed from his paralysis in a minute, it's possible Jesus wanted to heal him earlier, but he was prevented from going. He was delayed to go and do the healing because of this guy's disobedience. And the crowds now blocked people. But then, after a while, chapter 2, it says sometime later, Jesus was able to again enter Capernaum and he goes to the house. A lot of people think this was probably uh, Simon Peter's house. He goes there. Everybody hears he's there. So the crowd gets so big 
that people couldn't even get in. This is an unintended consequence of that guy's disobedience. Now, I know of a church when they, um, this is kind of a church word, but when somebody starts a new church, they, it's often called a church plant. The idea is that it's like, you know, you plant a seed in the ground and it grows into that tree or that bush or whatever. And the idea is if you plant a, a seed of, of the gospel and Christians working, then a church will grow out of that. And there was a church plant and they felt called to go and to the, the heart of their city. It, it would be like if a church wanted to start like, you know, right next to the you know, the Willamette. Hey, where, where are you going to be? We're just going to be like on the corner of, you know, Division and MLK, or we're going to be right in the Pearl District, or we're going to be, um, you know, just in the heart of where everything is. But it's hard to find a location for a church to meet there. And they found a location um, near the train station, and it, was, it would be free. It was perfect for a church to meet in. The only, the only rule that was put on them was, hey, the rest of the time, you know, you can meet here Sunday, but the rest of the time there was a sort of a youth drop-in center run. And we can't have um, people, you know, homeless folks with addiction come in because they'll come in, they'll shoot up in our bathroom, and the next thing you know, all of the, the, the drug influence is here and we're trying to reach youth who are on the streets. Okay, fine. Yeah, we, we can do that. We can minister to, to the people with addiction issues in a different uh, context. Understood. And then they had like a, a outreach evangelism team come. And the leader of that team was told, hey, this is the one rule. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then what happened? He let somebody, oh, can I just come in and use the bathroom? Yeah, come on in. Came in and all of a sudden there's, there's used heroin needles all in the bathroom. And that church plant lost their building. Free building. Location you couldn't beat. Because one guy is like, yeah, I'm just going to do whatever I want. So something I think about is, Lord, something might seem like a really good idea. Is that what you want? Something might seem to make sense to me, but is that what you want me to do? It's possible that there would be something that you just go, I don't see what the big deal is. I know that the Bible says not to do this. I know that like Christians aren't supposed to do this thing, but that seems like something from way back and not for today. You know, I mean, that's like a nice ideal, but it's not for me. It's a challenge of faith to say, I may not understand why God's word says this. I may not understand why when I pray about something that seems like such a fantastic idea, all that I, I feel and I hear and I receive and answer to that prayer is no, don't do it. But I have to trust that the Lord knows what he's doing. That, that God might have things figured out more than I do. And because of this guy's disobedience, it actually made it harder for Jesus to work. And so he's there, he's teaching, and this guy's friends come and they bring him and they can't even get to Jesus. It's so packed. The house is so packed. They can't even get to Jesus. So they go up on the roof and they start to make a hole. And there's disagreements about how they did this and you know different methods of 
first century Mediterranean construction that might have allowed for this? I don't overthink it. They got up on the roof. They somehow made a hole. If you're the homeowner, this is not a good situation. And they begin to lower him down. And it says in verse 5 that Jesus saw their faith. He saw their faith. He saw the faith of all of this man's friends. He saw the faith of this paralyzed man. I don't know where you're at in in relation to unbelievers in your life. I I appreciate, I know uh, people have told me they pray for my brother. I appreciate that. My brother Zach's not a Christian. I think there is a place for us to have faith for other people. I can't save anyone. My faith can't save you. Your faith in God cannot save me. When, when I meet somebody and I, and, and I begin to talk about uh, spiritual issues, faith, belief, well, my grandmother prays. That's wonderful. What's that got to do with you? The, the faith of a believing grandparent or, or parent or aunt or close family friend or whoever does not save us. My, my wife could believe and it does not affect me because if I don't believe. I could believe and it won't affect my kids if they don't believe. That being said, I believe we can have faith for people. That there are moments where somebody might come and say, I don't even have the faith to ask God to work in my life. And you can just say, you know what? I'll have the faith to ask God for you and to pray that God will give you an increased faith. That maybe somebody, you know, if you're a paralyzed guy, maybe you've asked God to heal you and you've just given up. There's no hope. But his friends had faith to bring him to Jesus. His friends had faith to say, we could give this a try. We've heard about the leper who was healed. We've heard about Simon Peter's mother-in-law who was healed. Maybe this guy could heal our friend. He saw their faith, but he forgave this man's sins because just because he, his friends had faith, it doesn't mean that that could cover for him. Somebody else's faith helped bring me to a place where I gave up my life and followed Jesus. But I had to be the one to do it. There, it's interesting. They lower him to Jesus. Jesus looks at him. And instead of healing him, he says, your sins are forgiven. Now, I said a minute ago, that there was a belief in that culture that illness or infirmity were the result of somebody's sin. Maybe you didn't sin, but maybe your parents or your grandparents sinned and you're just, sorry man, you're cursed. And Jesus over and over again refuted that man-made belief. And yet here, he looks at him and instead of dealing with his physical issues, he deals with his spiritual issues. There, are, there is a belief, and I, I tend to believe this myself, 
that this guy was not born paralyzed. And it's a little bit of guesswork having to do with him having so many friends and, and the way that Jesus interacts with him. But the, the thinking is, from context, that it's very possible that he was not born paralyzed. Um, maybe he got drunk one night and fell down the stairs and broke his back. Maybe he was a guy that was known to like to get into fights. You ever met people like that? Maybe you were people like that. Maybe you are people like that. He got in a fight one night and somebody broke a chair over his neck and he hasn't been able to move his limbs ever since. My aunt, for many years, was a, a caretaker, an overnight caretaker for a, a young man. And uh, I think if I remember the story correctly, he had literally said, hold my beer. And he'd been drinking. It was not his first beer. And he did something incredibly stupid at a party or somewhere and broke his neck and was paralyzed from the neck down for the rest of his life. And he died a relatively young man from complications. The idea is that it's very possible that some sinful action on this guy's part brought him to that place. And whether that's true or not, I don't know. But even if he had been born paralyzed and no fault of his own, he still had sins to be dealt with. All of us are born into the curse of sin and death. Because of, of the first human's sin, all of us are born sinners by nature. And then we go and we sin and we become sinners by action. And we need our sins dealt with. If Jesus had healed this man's body and done nothing else, then he might have lived a good life and then died still afflicted by his sins. But Jesus first went to the bigger issue. Would you rather be paralyzed the rest of your life and spend eternity with God? Or would you rather have health and happiness and wealth the whole rest of your life and spend eternity with the consequences that our sins deserve? Now, somebody might not like that. It's funny, we just, every Christmas in some form, I'm exposed to the Christmas Carol, the Dickens, Charles Dickens story. Because I have kids this year, it was the Muppets Christmas Carol. And in the story, Jacob Marley, Ebenezer Scrooge's old business partner, as a ghost, as a spirit, appears to him. And in the Muppets Christmas Carol, it's the two old critics. So they appear to him, and he, and he says, Where, what are these chains? And they say, these, these chains were forged in life by our greed and our selfishness and our, our injustice and how we, how we uh, treated the poor and how, how horrible we were as people. It's funny, nobody ever complains about that part of the story because, well, yeah, those guys are bad guys. But if we talk about it about ourselves, well, wait, what? All of us have been forging chains. Jesus breaks those chains. And so Jesus looks at this man and he says, your sins are forgiven because in faith, this man was looking to Jesus for his salvation. And it's interesting to me that the people who oppose Jesus 
aren't the desperate people, but they're the quote-unquote secure people. Who opposes Jesus here? It's the religious leaders who think, oh, I'm a good person. I've studied all of the law, the scriptures. I know the Bible front to back, cover to cover, heart just recited by heart. I've kept all of the rules that people care about. I look so good in public. And they were the ones who said, how dare you? The man, after he was healed, he's no longer in a place of desperation. Jesus says, don't tell anybody. Go straight to the priest. And what does he do instead? He doesn't go to the priest. He goes and he tells everybody. Sometimes when we feel secure in ourselves is when we start to act in disobedience, which then makes it harder for God to work. The healed leper should have been enough proof for the religious leaders. And yet they just were so secure in themselves. It should have been enough, and it wasn't. God wants to work, and He wants to forgive people's sins, and He wants to change people's life, but He's going to oppose the proud. If, if we as church people are proud in and of ourselves and our accomplishments, and look how good we are, and everybody else is just going insane, and we're the ones standing for the truth, then we have missed the heart of Jesus. The world may be going insane, but Jesus wants to heal it. He wants to fix it. He wants to work in it. And so, of course, he, he looks at these religious guys who are being all, whoa, what are you doing? And he says, well, which is easier? I just said his sins are forgiven. Anybody can say that. But here's a guy that all of you know has been paralyzed, can't walk, which is easier? I just said something. Anybody could say, get up and walk. And the man does. Gets up and he walks out of the house with everybody seeing. Because Jesus had power over all things. Even power to not just forgive our sins, but to give us a new start. The Bible says that if anyone is in Christ, if anyone has placed their faith in Jesus, if anyone has surrendered their life to Jesus' control, that they are a new creation. The old things have passed away. And Jesus wants to heal people if we just get out of His way. And I think it's worth asking, okay, for me, first of all, what needs healing in my world? Is there some brokenness? Is there some bitterness? Is there some um, resentment? Is there something that needs healing because it is blocking God's work in my life? Maybe there's something holding back from asking. Maybe you need faith just to have faith. <laughs> I don't know. And then it's worth asking, am I doing anything to block others from God's work? Am I doing anything to block others? Like that crowd, they bring the man with, who's paralyzed and they want to bring him to Jesus and it's just can't get in. And certainly, we, it's, it's easy to know what churches did wrong in the past. You know, some churches, people want to come to Jesus. No, you can't come because uh, you don't dress the right way. Uh, you, well, we don't have a dress code. Okay, that's not an issue. Another church, well, you can't come because 
we're going to do uh, this thing to make it impossible for you to come. We don't have that. Anybody can come. So what are the unseen, invisible barriers that get put up? I think it's worth asking, asking God to show us those things. In my own life personally, what is keeping people from God's work in their life if I'm putting up barriers? And then us as a church collectively. And then finally, is there anything that I'm doing to oppose God's work? Do you guys, I don't know if you know who Kanye West is. He's a rapper. He's a, married to a person who's famous for being famous. And this last year, he, he claims that he's become a Christian. And he put out a, a record, a Christian record. And he's going around doing these church services, concert things, and supposedly people are, are coming to faith in Jesus. I, I have no idea. But I know this, that there were Christians who said, well, God can't work through him. I have no idea if Kanye West is really a Christian. I hope he is. I, I, I also know there was a time when others have done similar things. My, my favorite Bob Dylan record is Slow Train Coming. It's his Christian album. Bob Dylan has two Christian albums, uh, Saved and Slow Train Coming. I hope that that's not what Kanye is doing. I hope it's like a legitimate faith, and I'm not going to judge what's going on. But I do know this, is that if Christians were saying, well, how could God work through that person? Then we've forgotten that God took a murderer like Paul a religious or a political zealot like Simon, a coward like Peter, and he took those guys and said, hey, I'm going to use you. And he took a knucklehead like me and he took you. So why can't he work through Kanye West? And if I'm putting up barriers to my kids knowing about Jesus because they look at my life and they say, yeah, yeah, he talks about God, but you know what? The love of God is not in our home. If I put up barriers to my neighbors knowing about Jesus, if I put up barriers to our community knowing about Jesus, because, well, you can come, but you have, to, you have to toe the line. Or we say, hey, you're welcomed here. You're loved here. And we're going to tell you the truth. That's how much we love you. But we want to see lives change because we believe God is willing to work. Amen? I'll tell you, if... If God hasn't worked in your life and you're like, is that something that could be for me? Yes. And as the band comes up, what we do every Sunday is we do this. We, we know that we hear from God through His Word. We know that God is speaking to us as we pray together, as we worship together, as we study the, the Word of God together. And so we, res, we just respond. If God's been speaking to you and He's been putting on your heart, ask for healing, ask for forgiveness, Ask for power. Ask for victory over this sin. Ask for deliverance from this bondage. Ask for restoration of that relationship. Then ask. We respond and one of them is prayer. Pray. Ask. You don't have enough faith? Then grab the person next to you. Hey, can you have faith for me and pray with me over this? We respond through giving. And if you're visiting, you can let the, the collection plate pass you by. This is a way that our church supports the work God is doing here and we worship the Lord through our resources. 
But we're not here for your money. This is just a, a thing that this, for those of us part of this church family that we do. And we respond through worship. And maybe this morning, the, the response is to sing out in faith, to believe in faith. Maybe you have been distant from Jesus. Maybe you've never placed your faith in Jesus. But you say, you know what? I am going to stand and believe. And I'm going to praise the name of God. However God has been speaking to you, this is the time to respond. Let's respond to Him this morning.